You have an image of God in your mind which competes with God. And I do too. You have an image of God. You have a narrative of sorts about God that rests in your mind which competes with the God that Jesus revealed. Now, I'm convinced that one day we will appear before the great and glorious seat, throne room of God, and we will learn as we do that all of our images of God were a little bit off to one degree or another, right? We will not mind the depths of who God is during our days on earth alone. We have all of eternity to, to do that. And some of what we believe will be exposed as false. Even atheists have some image of God in their mind. I'm quite sure, at least in my experience, talking with atheists and those who are agnostic, that there's some portrait of God that they really don't like, that they have rejected, which I would reject as well. Okay, we, we all have some kind of image of God in our mind that really drives us to some degree. That portrait that we have was developed in our mind across many years and many, many different life experiences. It certainly came from our families of origin. It came from our suffering experiences. It came from our answered prayers and from those prayers that we felt like God didn't answer. It came from the various struggles, though, that we've had. It came from our own human psychology, like the way we all just kind of deal with stuff in our own psychology. And increasingly, lately, our image of God comes to us through social media and television and Hollywood. So we're starting a new, a new series here, though, this morning called God and His Competitors, and what we're not looking at necessarily is like the different religions of the world, Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or any of those, Mormonism. We're not looking at the different religions of the world and their portraits of God and how those portraits of God would compete with the God of the Bible. That's a worthy task, but that's not what we're doing here. And we're not going to look at the American gods of sex, power, or money. It's important to, to look at those American gods which absolutely compete with the real God, but that's not what we're doing either. What we're doing in the, this series is examining these narratives, these portraits that develop in our minds over the course of years and decades, and as we examine them, we're going to expose their weakness in contrast to the greatness of God as revealed in Jesus. What we want to do across all of life is develop a portrait, a narrative about God that's more Jesus-y. Okay, not a real word, a made-up word, but you get the idea. We want our portraits of God to be submitted to Jesus. Across all of life, here is a central question. Who is God to you? Now, how do you define God? That, that's a central question across all of life that we'll return to again and again. And I just wonder, like when you are not at church, 
when you're not in your life group, when someone isn't telling you what to believe about God, and then you think to pray to God, or you wonder what would God think about this situation, I wonder what adjectives would come into your mind in that moment as you think about God. Again, we develop these narratives and they shape how we see God and they shape how we see the world as a whole. Like depending on the narrative you have about God, you're gonna start to see the world as a competition maybe. And if you see the world as a competition, then what happens? Your interactions with other people become really aggressive. Or if you see the world as a zero-sum economy, then what happens is, if someone else is doing well, then I worry that maybe I will not do well. Or if you see the world as dangerous, then you buy up gobs and gobs of insurance. Or if you see the world as mostly about my pleasure and my comfort, then we get what we've got for the past few decades. We get just what we've got right now. In high school, I read one and only one sermon. Um, I, I, I wasn't raised in the church. I, I didn't know uh, much about God, didn't know much about Christianity, had listened to a few sermons um, for, for sure, but I, I read one sermon in my AP U.S. History course, and it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. And I've reread that sermon uh, in later years, and I realized there is some really good stuff in that, but that being the only sermon I had ever read, it kind of shaped my portrait of the Christian God. And the portrait that began being shaped in my mind as a young 17-year-old was a God that I was frankly kind of scared of and wanted to kind of stay away from. More common today, we develop our portraits, our images of God, I think based kind of on movies and social media and soft, cuddly portraits of God I was just uh, thinking though this past week about um, some of the different movies that I've seen over the years and the ways they have represented God. And you could add to these, but the, there's one where this guy will only pray to sweet, cuddly baby Jesus. And he'll only pray to sweet, cuddly baby Jesus, but because he's so soft and cuddly and easy to manage. And there's another that will only want to pray to Jesus in like a, um, I think he called it a tuxedo t-shirt. Because the tuxedo says he's real formal, but the t-shirt says, uh, I'm not really that formal, I kind of want to come out and party with you. And so that's the Jesus though that he prays to. And another Hollywood type is fond of saying Jesus is my homeboy. No he ain't, no he ain't. And then he had another movie, like God would get to your prayer requests if only he had a little bit more time. Okay, so these are all narratives that develop in our minds to complement the things that we've been taught from our families of origin or from a prayer that wasn't answered the way we wanted it to or a suffering experience or maybe even the way the church of our youth taught us to think about God. 
I love the way A.W. Tozer, one of the greatest pastor theologians of the last century, put it, and I've quoted this before, but it's profound in its simplicity. Whatever it is that comes to your mind when you think about God will be the most important thing about you. Mm. Whatever comes to your mind when you think about God, it will guide the way you think about yourself, about the world, about other people. I love the way Dallas Willard, another one of my favorite authors, put it. He said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. And no idea is more central than our idea of God. Think about it. It will guide the way you see yourself. Does God want me to be a doormat? Does God want me to be rich? Does God show that he's angry with me by making me poor? These are common narratives that people have about God. If you listen to certain TV preachers, you'll get that exactly week in and week out. Or what's my narrative about the world? Are we living like in a perpetual winter that spring will never come? It's kind of a hopeless existence and things are just getting worse and worse. This world is going to hell in a handbasket, as they say. Some people have that view of the world based on their view of God. Other people have a view of the world that, like it's this constant cultural battle. And the main thing about Christianity is winning this battle. No, it isn't. Okay, read the Gospels. No, it isn't. Other people still have this view of God that like it's my job as a Christian to impress other people. Okay, in this world it's my job to impress other people. And so I need to have a really sweet ride and I need to have kids that never annoy me in public and never do anything though that's displeasing to, to me in front of other people that I'm trying to impress for God. Okay, all of this comes from our portrait of God. Or how about this, our spiritual life. I am firmly convinced that the strength and the beauty of your spiritual life will rise out of your portrait of God. Because if you have a portrait of God that's too low, you won't be interested in praying to God. If you have a portrait of God that's too low, you won't be interested in telling other people about God. Your portrait of God will dictate the way you think about those who are fellow Christ followers and those who are not Christ followers. Toward those that you like and those that you don't like. It will affect the way you read your Bible. It will affect the way you live well with your money. All of these things are affected by the way we think about God. Just one other example. It will affect your resting emotion. What resting emotion would you like to have? Some people have a resting emotion that's anxious or angry. And other people you meet, amazingly, over time, they develop this beautiful resting emotion characterized by joy and peace. I am convinced that flows 
from your image of God. And the kind of time that you spend with him and how you allow that image to shape you. Friends, we are at the mercy of our ideas. These ideas that we have, they're kind of like a, um, a background operating system for a computer. They're the software that are running our lives. We don't see them, but these ideas, they run the way we think about ourselves, about the world, about our spiritual life, even our resting emotion. We are at the mercy of our ideas. Here's my presupposition across this entire series. For the next seven weeks, we'll be operating out of this presupposition. Our default portraits of God need to be reformed to look more like Jesus. Because these default portraits that we have are either close to Jesus or they're not very close to Jesus. And the software that we have though, that's running behind the scenes over the course of many years, it kind of develops this malware, right? Softwares develop malware and so it is well, with the way we think about God across years and, and decades, we develop malware in how we think about God and so again and again, our portrait of God needs to be conformed to look more like Christ. So what, for example, if we dwelt regularly on the wonder of the Trinity? Like you just allow your mind to go there. That we have one God and three distinct persons that are interdependent well with one another and at the very heart of the universe, at the very heart of the Trinity, from time immemorial was love. The love was at the very heart of the Trinity, fought from the very beginning, even before God chose to create us in his image and likeness, God himself was in loving relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and he chose to create us to be like him and to reflect him to, to our world, and then he chooses to invite us into that loving relationship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, such that we would have union with God. Wow. Like to dwell on that, and the implications of that triggers awe and wonder at the greatness and glory and love of God. Or to dwell often, to set ourselves in the gospel narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and say, because Jesus is the incarnation of God, I will have my images of God formed by him and therefore I will meditate every day. Yeah, I, I might read through the Bible, I, I read the Psalms oftentimes, but on top of that, every day I'm gonna meditate on a short passage of Jesus. Because Jesus is the incarnation of God and I want any image that I have about God in my mind to be counteracted by the truth of Jesus, who says in John 14, for example, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know what God is like, look at me. I and the Father are one, he says. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. And you might remember in that famous passage, John 14, his disciples are kind of befuddled by all of this. And they're, they're, they just remain confused, and they say, just show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you get it? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That's what Jesus says. If you have seen me, Jesus says, you have seen the Father. Okay, so I'm kind of belaboring this point, but the idea is don't develop three portraits of God. 
It's one God. And Jesus reveals him to us. We want our portrait of God to be conformed to Jesus. Okay, all of that said, let's, let's open now to um, Matthew 9. If you're not already there, you find Matthew chapter 9 in the New Testament, first book of the New Testament. Please open your Bible to that with me right now. And we're going to see this weak competitor today and then this strong God who serves as a contrast to that weak competitor. And we're going to look at seven weak competitors across this series, and each time the strong God the great God, the glorious God, Jesus, though, that serves as a contrast to these false images though, that develop in our minds. The weak competitor here though, this morning though, goes like this. God is like a divine drill instructor who only loves us when we're good. Just by show of hands, who would say at one time or another they have succumbed to this portrait, this narrative of God. Just, just, just show, I certainly have. God is divine drill instructor. Keep them up for just a second. God is divine drill instructor who's happy with us when we're good. Okay, a fair number of people well, would say, yes, that's, that's true. That's kind of what I have fallen into from time to time in my life. Now, that background narrative that runs in our minds oftentimes looks like this feared military instructor, something kind of like this. Or this screaming football coach who is barking out instructions and is mostly angry with you and mostly notices the things that you do wrong and frankly, his resting emotion is kind of ticked off. From time to time, he's good with you. When you do just what he says, he's okay with you. But it's performance-based acceptance. This is a really common view I've noticed in America today. And people that I counsel People that I meet with, I notice that many people have this image of God in their mind, and so they think that anytime something bad happens in their life, it's because God is mad at them. Okay, it's a false view, but it's a very, very common one. I remember Bob back um, after 9-11, perhaps many of you remember this as well, there are all kinds of commentators who would get on the TV and the radio and tell us why this happened. Always a silly thing to do in the midst of suffering. Always a silly thing to do, at least God giving an explanation in terms of God's sovereignty in the midst of suffering to say why this happened. And one very popular TV broadcaster uh, came on uh, his television show and he basically explained that 9-11 happened but because of all the gambling and all the sexual license and all the drug dealing in America. And it was God's punishment of America but because of her sin. And so the basic logic was um, God is really angry with America but because of her sin, and so God decided to hire all of these non-Christians to fly some planes into buildings to send our nation into chaos and to kill a few thousand people. It's a bizarre idea, but it's a popular one that many people hold at a much lower level than that. And I, I'm, I'm certainly not excusing or winking at things like dealing drugs 
or gambling or sexual license. Like everyone gambles these days, it seems, and people just wink at it. And Super Bowl Sunday, I'm just going to say it, gambling is terrible stewardship of what God has given you. Terrible stewardship of what God has given you. Okay? That's a message for another day. But I do think it's worth saying, since it's everywhere in the commercials right now, but this narrative that comes from this picture is, God is pleased with you when you do just what he wants, otherwise he's kind of ticked off with you. And you see it here in Matthew chapter nine. Look at verse nine. As Jesus went on from there, okay, he's just forgiven a man who was paralyzed, healed a man who was paralyzed. And it says, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth because he was a, he was a tax collector, okay? Matthew's a tax collector, hold on to that. So he's sitting at a tax collector booth and he says to this tax collector, follow me. And Matthew got up and immediately he left his lucrative field of business and followed Jesus. Well, Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, then he goes over to Matthew's house and he has dinner with him. Many tax collectors and other known sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Maybe the Pharisees are like trying to guard Jesus' reputation here. They're a little bit worried about his reputation. Okay, probably not, that was a joke. On hearing this, Jesus said, okay, as he's talking to to, uh, his disciples and the Pharisees are talking to his disciples, and hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But you go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners to repentance. Now, you you know the Pharisees were very devout, okay? They weren't necessarily bad guys. They were very devout religious people. They dressed the part. They went to temple or synagogue every week. And people looked up to them as spiritual leaders. And they believed that when Messiah came, Messiah would hang out with good guys like them. They believed that if God was to send a servant of his, that servant would come and hang out with righteous people like them. Their narrative, of course, their background operating system was when you are put together on the outside, God is good with you. And God would applaud that and he would reward the good things though that you do while he punishes those nasty and messy people out there that we really don't hang out with. Their narrative was one called performance-based acceptance. Say that with me. Performance-based acceptance. That was their narrative. That God gives acceptance to you based on your good performance, and he's mad at you based on your bad performance. Really, at the end of the day, it's based on who? It's based on you. It's based on you. 
That's kind of what they thought. They said, okay, it's, it's based on what we do. Since we're good people, God will give his good things to, to us. Now, they also thought that because God is good, he wouldn't hang out with bad folks. He wouldn't be polluted by, by those bad folks, and certainly not someone like tax collectors. Now, tax collectors, you know, like that's kind of lost in translation for us today. Many of us don't understand what, what a big deal it was that Jesus called a tax collector named Matthew to be one of his first disciples, but other of us don't really get that, okay? A tax collector was the lowest of the lowest, the lowest of the low in Jewish culture because they were contracted by the Roman government to take taxes from their fellow Jews and they were known to take a little bit off the top to put in their own pockets. So you think of contemporary IRS? Not even close. You think of the socialist Democrat that you don't like? Not even close. They were scoundrels. And Jesus says, come be my disciple. And not only does he say, come be my disciple, he extends the hand of friendship to Matthew and these fellow tax collectors and labeled sinners by going over to their home for dinner. Jesus tells the Pharisees in the midst of all of this, please understand I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, sacrifice is about externals, whereas mercy is about the heart. When Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he says what he wants is your heart. He wants a heart that's devoted to God, not about external markers of religiosity that we would prove our worth some way to God. That's what the Pharisees were always trying to do. They were saying, look at me, how I give my public tithes for everyone to see. Yuck. I'm so glad that we don't pass the bags here anymore for that very reason. It's an anonymous thing, but between us and God. Amen? Really, it is. It's an anonymous thing, but between us and God. They would say, look at me while I practice the Sabbath. Look at me in the midst of my sacrifices at the temple. Look at me and the good people that I surround myself with. I'm only always around other good people just like me. I do not hang out with any of those filthy Gentiles like us. Thank God Christian missionaries chose to hang out with filthy Gentiles like us, amen? May we also hang out with other filthy folks because there are no filthy folks. We all have the same need, but before God, we're all in need of God's grace. Now, they didn't understand this, but because they were just focused on these superficial, superstitious externals. Their God was one of like this simple arithmetic. If I do good, then I will get good. It's superstition. And here's the deal, it's not found anywhere in scripture. It's a human idea, it's not God's idea. And it leads to legalism. And yet so many people seem drawn to this. Why is that? I think the reason, the main reason that people feel drawn to this divine drill instructor is because it presents a God that they can control. And we love control, don't we? We want so much to be in control. And when you have this, then you can say, if I do good, 
then God will give me good. And if other people are getting bad, it must be because they did bad. It presents a God that we can control. And because we love control so much, and I understand wanting control, like we live in a chaotic world, but God is present and God is good and God brings good even out of the chaos. And control is not what he offers to us. And it's not the God that Jesus revealed. Now, this isn't just the Pharisees, though, that hold on to this. Many of us do as well. And apparently, in the first century, it was kind of like a common Jewish belief. It seemed to be the default narrative that the disciples held as well. There's another instance in John chapter 9, for example, that comes to my mind right now. Um, The disciples see this man who was born blind. Do you remember this? And do you remember what would they ask Jesus the moment they saw this man that was born blind? Their question was, who sinned? Who sinned? Was it this fella or was it his folks? Who can we blame? Who can we shovel some blame and shame on because this man is in this sorry condition that he's born blind because of either his sinfulness or his mama's sinfulness. Now the contrast to this weak drill sergeant, the contrast to this is what God is revealed through Jesus in the scripture. It goes like this, God is good, not just to the good, God is good to the good and the bad. God is good to the good and the bad. Look at verse 12. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Remember, a messenger of God would never go eat with a well-known scoundrel, so why is he doing that? On hearing this, Jesus said, don't you understand, it's not the healthy though that need a doctor, but sinners like me that need a doctor. It's the sick. It's sinners like me that need a doctor. Are you able to confess though that you need a doctor? If you're not able to confess though that you need a doctor, then Jesus has no room for you. Please hear that. If you're not able to confess that you need a doctor, if you falsely believe that you can come to God on your own goodness, then there is no place for you in the kingdom of God. That is the one thing that will exclude you from the kingdom of God. The starting place, the only label that we should ever give anyone is the label that we give to ourselves, I am a sinner in need of grace. That's it. That's the only label. I am a sinner in need of grace. And yes, I'm more of a saint today than I am a sinner today because of the grace of God. But even still, as I look in the mirror, I see someone that is very much in process, very much in need for God's grace still today. And this is a heart level posture that God is able to work with. Like it's so ironic as Jesus is talking to, to these Pharisees, he's actually saying to them, you think you're so healthy. But the truth is, all these people that you've labeled as tax collectors and sinners, they're way more healthy than you are. Because you think you can come to me on the basis of your good deeds, and you can't. Whereas these people recognize that they are needy before God, and the kingdom of heaven is available to them. Friends, if this is our posture, 
God, I need you. God, I need you. I am a sinner in need of you. I need your blood. The promise is, God will draw near to that. But if our posture ever becomes kind of the self-righteous looking down at other people, as long as you're looking down at other people, what aren't you looking up at? You're not looking up at God. Romans 5 says this, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. He spread out his arms on Calvary's tree. He marched up that old rugged cross. He spilt his blood for you and every person you meet. Christ Jesus died for us. If we get this in us, it'll liberate us from having to label people. If we get this in us, it will liberate us from wondering whether God is punishing us every time we get sick or lose a job. If we get, us, get this in us, we will not equate God's grace with karma as if he's obliged somehow to do good to us because we did good to someone else. And if we get this in us, we will see God as gracious to us each and every day and gracious to everyone that we meet. And we'll look outside and we'll remember there's the sun. And Matthew 5 said, our Father in heaven is good to the evil and the good alike. He sends his sun to shine on the good and the evil alike and he brings his rain down on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. In his goodness, he sends sun and rain to all of us, and we just anticipate this is part of life in this broken, fallen world underneath the providence of God for every one of us, and there's no use in dividing people into good or bad, and there's no use in assuming every bad thing though that came to me, it must be because this angry God is behind the scenes looking to punish me. We're all a mixed bag, right? Right? We're all a mixed bad bag. And God is good to us all. We're a mix of good and bad, and God is kind to us all. And so I just want to leave you with this. A few simple applications if you struggle with this operating system in the background. Okay? These aren't on your handout, but you might write these down. If you just struggle with this idea that God is angry with you when you make a mistake, or you're searching through your suffering experiences as to why God is punishing you, do one or two of these little applications. The first one is this, go outside. Go outside often. And as you go outside, give thanks for the stars. And give thanks to God for the rain and the sunshine and the trees and the rivers and even the wind, even the Nebraska wind. Give thanks to God for all of that because he sends his son to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous alike every day, including us. 
Number two, ask this question and then write on it. Who is God? And then write down your adjectives to that question. And then ask the second question, who is Jesus? And write down your adjectives to that question. And see if the two match. And if they don't match, it's time to start asking that the Lord would conform your image of God to the portrait of Jesus in the Gospels. Number three, as you're doing that, soak yourself every day in the Gospels. It can be half a chapter a day that you meditate in. And you say, Lord God, would you show me what you're like through the image of Jesus who incarnated this world in flesh and blood. If you see me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. So may I see the Father in you, Jesus. And would you conform my portrait of God to what I see in the beauty of Jesus. And then number four, the Bible tells us on at least two occasions, God is love. Like, it's not that he acts in a loving way, he is love. It's essential to his being. His two core characteristics are holiness and love. Okay, so God is love. And if he is love, and then you look at something like 1 Corinthians 13, which is the most beautiful statement on what love is that's ever been written, maybe you would do this. You would take these words, God is love, which come two times from 1 John, and as you read 1 Corinthians 13, here's a great practice, I'm telling you, a great practice. As you read 1 Corinthians 13, you read through it, and it says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, and insert the word God every time you read the word love. Because God is love, you can do that. So instead of love is patient, love is kind, it is not rude, it is not envious, it does not boast, you say this, God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. He does not boast. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. God keeps no record of wrongs. God does not rejoice in evil, but he rejoices in the truth. On and on, God's love never fails. Okay? And then we ask God, would you make my portrait of you more like Jesus that I would move into this world with greater confidence in who my God is. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so grateful. We are so grateful for who you are. We're so grateful that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. And we can dispose of this false idea that God is good to those who are good and he's bad to those who are bad. And we kind of have to always read the tea leaves to understand whether we're being punished for some minor infraction. And instead, Father, while well, we can come to you in Jesus Christ and realize that you are good all the time and you are gracious to all that you have made and a regular weekly or even daily procedure for us would be to 
get honest with you about the ways that we've missed the mark, to admit our failures to you, to ask you for forgiveness, and to know that you are so good, that you are so kind, that you are so righteous, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness every time that we ask. God, you are that good. Lord, would you begin to reform our views of God? Some of us are just scared of you. And we ask, God, that you would awaken us to the joy of your presence. That the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. That we could enjoy you a little bit more. That we could grow in our affection for God. And that would begin to change us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you start even right here in our hearts. We give them to you. And we thank you, God, that you'll have us now. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.